Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James, James chapter 3. James 3 can be found on page 1290 in your pew Bibles. We'll be reading verses 13 to 18. And the difference between wisdom from above and what comes from below. Before we read God's word, let's ask for his blessing. Father in heaven, we come before you as your children, as children who desire to be instructed in the way of wisdom those who desire to, to fulfill and even portray, show the wisdom of Christ in our own action. We then pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our minds to be receptive to your word, for we know that this is truly the word of God that comes to us. Let everything that would be said this day be pleasing and according to your word, taken by us and applied, that it would find a hold, that it would be caught by our minds, Holy Spirit, and that we would seek to glorify you in the reception of this word and the changing of our hearts, all for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. James James 3, beginning in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Sends the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our lives. People of God, there is a flower native to the Indonesian island of Sumatra. It is called the corpse flower. This flower is rather large. It can grow up to 10 feet tall. It opens its flower, and once open, there's a large spike in the center. It is bright red, and it blooms. But it smells and presents itself like rotten meat. It's a veritable welcome mat to the, the insects that pollinate it. There are the, the carrion beetles, flies, these things that are, are drawn to this flower. The corpse flower looks, some, like, looks like something has died. It smells like something has died. It has the same chemicals that dead bodies produce. And yet this flower that presents itself as what these insects want and and need is, in fact, a deception. It's a lie. The flower begins to disintegrate after two days, and it's nothing but a big practical joke to these flies and carrion beetles. Unlike other plants that offer nectar, there's no real reward here. They think they're going to get a meal because it smells like something's dead. And yet... The flower, as what it presents itself, isn't actually true. What it is, is it's just a smelly flower. There's no payoff. It's called a corpse flower. That's the, at the end of the day, that's what it is. 
but it doesn't even give to these insects what they want. It doesn't even give to the scavengers what they need. How alike to what comes from below, the wisdom from below, if we called it, that is this flower. You see, it presents itself on one hand as a flower, but instead it's just a smelly corpse. It can even present itself in a beautiful way, but what's found out to be is there is no benefit there, just like there is no true wisdom in what comes from below. You see, James gives us two sources here and contrasts them between what comes from above, which is true wisdom, true wisdom coming from heaven itself, that is, received by the people of God, and what comes from below, which is not heavenly, it's, it's earthly, it's unspiritual, in fact, it's demonic. And you, have, you better know the difference, is what James says. True wisdom is from above, but anti-wisdom is from below. And you can't just, just count on your eyes to tell the difference. You can't just see that it's a beautiful flower there. Instead, it's a mess. And everything that you produce, everything that it produces is a smelly mess. is isn't what you want to produce. It isn't true wisdom. And so we'll look today... In answering James' question by which he began, who is wise among you, is what James asked. That's what we're asking today. Are you wise and understanding? That's the question. That's the question I want each of us to ask. Am I wise and understanding? Let me evaluate the fruit that I produce. And am I more like a true flower or a corpse flower? First, wisdom from below. We see this in verses 13 to 16 and the presentation of these different wisdoms. James begins first by asking that question, who is wise and understanding among you? He circles back to a topic that he, he brought up earlier in the book that he introduced, this theme of wisdom. Wisdom underlies a lot of what James is saying because James is about mature living for Christ. That's what his desire is. That's what he's presenting to the congregation. Well, mature living for Christ is just wisdom. Living for Jesus well is to answer, are you wise? If you live for Jesus wisely and maturely, you are a wise person. And so it makes sense that James would continue to circle back to what is true wisdom. And then he says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Another very common theme for James. Show it. Don't just tell it. Don't, don't just claim it. Show it. Live it. You are asking that question. He's asked the question, am I wise? Are you wise? Are we wise? Who's wise among you? Well, those who live it. Those who show it. Those who produce fruit. Particularly, he just presents a brief little summary of what the wisdom from above is, right before explaining what wisdom from below is. And he says, it's the meekness of wisdom. Particularly shown in the meekness of wisdom, in humility. Now we'll unpack that later, but he says that, and then in verse 14, dives in to what is coming from below. If we could tie it to our illustration, here's the attributes of the corpse flower. Here is that thing that's deceiving, that isn't true, that seeks to, to claim to be something, but isn't. And he says in verse 14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Do not boast and be false to the truth. You who claim to be wise, if you are instead jealous, full of selfish ambition, if what you do and say and the fruit you produce is for your own 
aggrandizing your own glory and honor, and that's what it's for. Well, that isn't from above, that's from below. Notice he starts with motivations. What motivates you? What motivates you to be a good Christian? What motivates you to be a good worker? What motivates you to be knowledgeable? None of us like to pure or foolish. None of us like to seem to be ignorant. What motivates your pursuit of knowledge and understanding? Are you more willing to pursue health and, and exercise and working out for self-grandizement? Do you seek to counsel others and tell them what might even be true from God's word, but the motivation is that you could be perceived as wise and thus grow in glory and understanding that people would praise you? Is it jealous? Are you after what others have, not just their possessions, but their standing, their reputation? And so you could mimic them, just like that corpse flower. Oh, this person has respect. This person is wise, and so I'm going to be like them. Now, that isn't bad in and of itself. We should imitate those who are wise. But what's the motivation? Is it jealousy or a desire to glorify Christ? You see, if it's just jealousy, then what it is is it stinks. It's like that rotting, decaying chemical the flower produces. Motivation is all wrong, and that's not true wisdom. It is only about ourselves. So why is this significant? Why is it significant that James tells us this and points out even jealousy and selfish ambition? Because so much of our understanding of wisdom is sinfully tied into understanding and knowledge. You see, jealousy and selfish ambition always go hand in hand with understanding, training, a pursuit of knowledge. And we too often conflate those and we think what wisdom is, is understanding. It's intelligence. It's smarts. It's being able to know the answer. It's being well-read. That's what it is. That's what we think. But no, by too often rating wisdom according to knowledge, we see that it is nothing more than a race to be the most intelligent. It is nothing more than a competition of jealousy and selfish ambition. And James says it's not any of that. You can have right, true knowledge and not biblical wisdom. You can't have biblical wisdom without true fruit, though. It is easy to mimic a flower, as the corpse flower shows. It is easy to mimic scriptural wisdom on one hand. It is easy to gain correct or true teaching. It is impossible to live a life of fruitful righteousness without Christ in your heart, without the fear of God, without true faith. And so James is telling the people, be aware of what is true wisdom. True wisdom is not knowledge per se. It's a mature life for Christ. That's what's truly wise. He's warning them to pursue that. What is the best indicator of those who are wise among us? It's not actually that ability to teach. It's not actually the amount of knowledge crammed into someone's head. It's the fruit that they produce. It's the genuineness of their confession. And doesn't that make sense? 
True wisdom takes true knowledge and it takes true life and it merges them together and what out overflows from that is the truth, it's the gospel, it's Christ, it's righteousness. And yet for those who might have all of the knowledge and head knowledge but not the fruit, not the life, well that is just the mark of a fool. No matter how intelligent they are, no matter how red they are, no matter how well they can teach and how gifted they are without that merging of knowledge and true righteousness and faith that produces that knowledge, all these people are are those who teach what is right and have no truth in them. They deceive their fools what they claim to believe they don't. That's not wise. What they claim to be is all a farce and a deception. And so James asks that, these corrective words, who's wise among you. Now, we need to apply that to our own hearts as individuals. Every one of us here needs to do that. But there's another layer to what James is likely doing. You'll notice back in verse 1 of chapter 3, James had specifically mentioned teachers. He had said that not many of you should desire to be teachers. He warned of the dangers of the tongue and specifically of those who teach. And then he asked this question in the next in the next segment of the text. Who is wise among you? This likely relates to that question of teachers. Those who are to be the teachers would be those who are wise. And yet what he's saying here is, what is the true category of wisdom? Those who desire to be leaders and authorities among you, those who desire to be teachers among you, don't just judge them on what they might know, but rather judge them. Do they show selfish ambition? Do they show jealousy? Do they produce fruit of righteousness? Presumably, those who will teach and lead in the church should be those who are wise, right? It's obvious. Those who would hold those positions should be the wisest among us. In establishing the wise among you, seek putting to place the test of humility and meekness. You know, the, the teaching gift is still a requirement. But we often so heavily weight that gift and forget the fruit of the person. And because of this, the church has been embroiled in so many scandals, has had so many problems from those who claim to be wise among them because of our faulty even definition of what wisdom is. They have great learning is usually all we mean, for they are greatly wise. And yet great learning without true faith, great learning without righteousness, destroys even if for a time it seems as if these are the champions of the faith, these teachers, these wise men. These are the ones who have it all. They become leaders of us. They gain great respect. And you see the danger there. The danger is in putting forward those who may have a gift, may even have knowledge, and yet not true wisdom. These False teachers, as we could call them, will usually wage a, a war that they don't even understand. Generally, there is some scandal. Generally, there is something that reveals the truth, that reveals a sinful life, that reveals pride and arrogance, as James will talk about. And then it's, you, you see the, the signs of it. You see that this person was very gifted, very gifted to teach and explain, and yet by their life and their actions, they did more harm than they did good. And they showed that what was coming down through them wasn't wisdom from above. It was something unspiritual from below. There are so many 
examples of this. You can think of those who do teach among us. You can think of those who conceal a life. And then what then are they after? You've got to ask this question. So if they're not living what they teach, what are they after? Is it not selfish ambition? Is it not jealousy? If it isn't true faith, what propels them? If it isn't producing fruit of righteousness, if it isn't producing peace, and everything that James says true wisdom is, then what is it? James uses that word that he has before. It's demonic. Demonic. That's what it is. You see, the reason we're, we're camping out on this is it, James isn't talking about false teaching. So many of the New Testament letters do. They point out the, the, what's wrong about the teaching. They put, point out what's incorrect. James isn't saying, beware of false teachers who teach something other than Christ. He's saying, no, beware of those who are truly wise. And it is what they produce. It's their fruit is that righteousness. So he's wanting us to weigh not their teaching, not because that's not important, but because for him, that's not the issue right now. It isn't the wisdom, the knowledge that these people might have those who want to be teachers, it is what they live. It's their statement of faith through their fruit. And without the one, you can't have the other. He says in verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice, because the ones who claim to be wise and perhaps are not can't bring about anything but what is vile. For the truth wouldn't be in them. But now I want to bring it back to ourselves. You see, there's these two aspects of this application. The one is that that way he's going with the wise among you, presumably those who are to teach. But you see, he isn't exclusively saying that. He's asking the general question to all, to all who are in the congregation, who is wise among you? That just brings up the general topic of wisdom itself. And so it's not only applied there. It should be, as we just did. We need to apply it to your own heart. It's not enough for us to sit here and listen to it and think that's right. Those teachers and those claimed wise men, those who have fallen, they were like that. No, we have to look at our own hearts. What do we do? Who is wise and understanding among you? Are you wise? What do you think of yourself? Do you conceive of yourself as wise, or do you want to be wise? That's a related question. Perhaps you think, I'm not very wise, but I want to be. Well, then you still have to evaluate what true wisdom is. And you have to ask, am I characterized more by jealousy? Am I more concerned with my image or my reputation than I am with the truth? That's huge. Am I more concerned with looking good than I am with the truth coming out of it? And when I say the truth, I don't just mean true doctrine. I mean, when someone comes to you and says, you know, I think you made a mistake there, are you more interested in the truth of the matter and what's glorifying to God than defending yourself? In a disagreement or an argument, in a discussion, are you more concerned that God would be glorified, that the truth would be revealed, than that you look good through it? that your knowledge would be on display? Or are you those crippled by fear who won't speak because you're afraid to look foolish or unwise? Well, that isn't it either. We should have flowing through us what is true wisdom, but is selfish ambition your guide? Is it all about you? 
Now you can, you can say and you can defend yourself, and often what we seek to do is try to protect ourselves from this accusation of selfish ambition and pride and to say, well, I'm just zealous. There's a lot of, there's a lot of emotion in me. There's a lot of zeal in me, and sometimes I come off a little strong. Well, is that just a way to hide behind the fact that no, your guiding principle is yourself? That there is no wisdom of restraint, that there's no wisdom that says, I might be wrong here, that there is no wisdom that, that, that decides to take no side, that stands to judge what is right and wrong, but instead jumps to conclusions. I'm just passionate. That's what others might say. Maybe it's just selfish, jealous ambition that's guiding you, though. Here's a question. Do you bring about discord? You'll notice, and we'll get to this in a few moments, when James talks about peace and being peacemakers for the truly wise, well, that means that the anti-wisdom from below is brings the opposite of peace. It's discord. Is that you? Do you bring about discord or do you bring about peace? Are you a peacemaker? Have you ever left a conversation in a disagreement where it ended well, where, where instead the truth was found and sought in humility, you dealt with it? Mark of wisdom is, is overlooking an insult. Do you overlook insults? Because it's not about you. You see, this is how we start seeing the true standard, the true weight of what biblical wisdom is, what, what Christ's wisdom is. It's not his selfish ambition. It isn't jealousy. It isn't a false representation of zeal. Is the crop you produce, does that look more like what Christ produces, or does it more look like what the demons produce? That's the wisdom from below. But now wisdom from above in our second point. Now we're going to take all what he says about wisdom from above together. So we're going to, I'm going to read verse 13 and then verses 17 and 18 together, because in verse 13 he brought up the topic and then switched to what isn't true wisdom. But I'm going to read verses 13 and 17 and 18 together. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This alone is true wisdom. For the sake of communication, I've been saying wisdom from above and wisdom from below. Okay, this is actually really interesting that James does not call what comes from below wisdom. I've been calling it that just to contrast the two, but you'll see in this text, James does not say that it is wisdom that comes from below. He says there is wisdom that comes from above, and then he leaves it unstated and talks about what comes from below because he won't even afford to that truth wisdom. He doesn't even call what comes from below wise. He calls it an anti-wisdom. That's what he's talking about. He calls it everything opposite of what wisdom is. True wisdom is heavenly, it's not earthly. Well, this is earthly. True wisdom is, is, is spiritual. It's, it's coming from God's own spirit. Well, this is unspiritual. True wisdom comes from above and is pure, but what's coming from below is what he says, demonic. Just like our introduction, it stinks, it smells, it's rotten. It isn't wise. 
That's the contrast when we see what is true wisdom. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And this warning is to tell us, notice how you need to seek it in meekness of wisdom. And then every quality he gives in these later verses of wisdom takes humility, it takes meekness. And that's part that, that's so fundamental to what true biblical wisdom is, is humility. I'm going to read some verses from Proverbs to show us this. Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. They don't have enough humility to take instruction. They despise correction. They despise training and knowledge and true knowledge. Proverbs eight thirteen. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So God says, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. God hates pride. If you don't feel the sting of that, you don't understand your heart. There's not a person in this room who does not face pride and face it daily, and face it every moment, and face it in such ways we don't even get. We don't even realize how proud we are. And it takes the Word of God, that sharp two-edged sword, to, to cut us open and flay us open, and it's just flaying the pride away, and it keeps cutting these slices away. But there's always more, for, for more pride to be cut off. There's always more arrogance. God hates pride. He hates arrogance. Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Humility comes before honor. We seek honor. We seek it through pride. We seek it through arrogance. We seek it through disorder. We seek it through running others down and building ourselves up. That's how we seek honor. And the biblical path to wisdom says, no, humility comes before honor. Those who would be honorable are those who are meek, those who are humble, those who are not proud and not arrogant. Proverbs 16, verse 5, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Strong statement. Proverbs sixteen twenty three. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Is our speech judicious? Persuasive? You can't hide behind why. I just, not that persuasive. Don't have that gift. Maybe you're not the most gifted in speech. Maybe you're not. But if your speech isn't judicious, then it's just proud. Then it's just wrong-footed. You don't need to be skilled in language. You don't even need to be a gifted communicator. You need to be loving. And that means you'll care to change your speech. Let's face it, some of us are just kind of blunt. And part of it is that's, that's the way we are. We, we might not be that discerning. We might not be that knowledgeable of what we're saying and how it affects us. And yet, if we're not truly humble enough or loving enough to take correction from others, to learn from them, and to try to then change that, well, then we're still guilty of this. Even if we're not naturally inclined that way, we should be seeking judicious speech, persuasive as well. And again, 
That might not mean you're most, the most gifted at persuading people. And what Proverbs is talking about there isn't just convincing them of the truth just because. What it's saying is that by your very life, by the quality of your words, by the love you display, and by the seeking the truth, you are persuasive. People will accept words from those who are truly meek and humble and loving long before they'll accept words from the most gifted orator, the most gifted arguer. It'll come from those who they know truly want their good. And so you don't need to be the most gifted, but you can still fulfill this. Proverbs 16.32, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. How often are our spirits not ruled by us, but ruled by our anger and temper. And we have about, maybe we have about a five-minute window on being able not to control our anger, but just not manifest it. And then out it comes, and it's like, well, why not? Who could blame that anger that came from me? No, Proverbs says, be slow to anger, because that's what God is. Slow to anger. Rule your spirit. That's better than he who can take a city in God's sight. You see, in God's plan, it's the humble man who fears the Lord. And the humble man who fears the Lord is not only considered wise on that account, but will be the one to gain in wisdom and prudence. The only way to receive this is to seek it in humility. And saying to seek it in humility doesn't then mean go out and then try to beat yourself down enough to be receptive to it. Like you're a plot of land. You've got to go out and hoe. You've got to go out and take out all the weeds. And if you just really beat yourself and make yourself worthy enough to receive the plant of wisdom, then you'll grow. No, when you say receive it in humility, you're saying receive it through the fear of the Lord. Receive it through faith. Receive it through prayer. It isn't about then us doing what could be like considered the old medieval monk method, and we go and we just whip ourselves and we say, I'm unworthy, and then we give a false humility to all and say, I'm just so bad. Well, no, it's a true understanding of what we are, but what Christ is. You know, that type of overly humble, we could say, overly self-depreciation is just pride. It isn't true wisdom. It isn't true humility. It's pride because at the end of the day, you think you can achieve it by how much you run yourself down. Or you're just running yourself down for so that others, when you fail, might just, yeah, well, he said that. He's a pretty humble guy. So you were just self-hedging your own failure. That's not true humility either. True humility is the fear of the Lord. It's looking to Christ and not ourselves. It's looking to Him as the answer. It's looking to Him for growth. James shows the good fruit here in these verses. Purity. Purity. Peace. And then a big one. Gentleness. I say that's a big one because that's so foreign to our ears. Do you seek to be gentle? Would some say that you're gentle? If they were to describe that in the way you've spoken and handled yourself, would it be that? Would you produce, would you be open to reason, as he says? Or are you pretty set in your mind thinking you got it all figured out? Are you full of mercy and good fruits? Would that, is that how we would be described? That person is full of mercy. That person is very gracious. 
judicious, persuasive, and caring? Are you impartial and sincere? Impartial and sincere? Here's a big application. Here's a big question to ask as we ask ourselves in our pursuit of wisdom, are we wise? Are you someone who others would come to because you are meek and humble enough to hear their concern and love and offer true help? Are you someone who others would seek out because they know that you'll listen to them in love and hear them and help them? Proverbs isn't saying you're just an empty ear. It isn't saying you're just there so that others can vent and you just nod your head and then they feel heard. That's perhaps a part of it, but that's not the end goal. We had read that in Proverbs. There's a persuasiveness to our speech, a judiciousness. We seek their good. We seek to help. And that means at times we'll have to call out sin. That means at times we'll have to point out where others were wrong. It means at times we'll have to just be there so that they have a shoulder to cry on. But you see that? That's wisdom to know what to do. Do others seek you out then, or would they instead think that that person's very unloving, that person's very rigid, that person isn't one to hear my problems and receive that humbly and help me, they'll just judge me. Christ is the prime example of this. The righteous one, the one who kept the law perfectly, the one who never sinned, the one who even created the law, had prostitutes and sinners flocking to him in such a way that they said that he will listen. He will hear. The, the one who was perfect, sinners came to, and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, they shied away from, and that was just fine for them because they didn't want to deal with them anyways. Those who should have understood the failures of the prostitutes, the failures of the sinners and tax collectors, because they are themselves wicked. Those who have failed in the law in every way and never kept it perfectly a day of their life, they're the ones who would say, depart, you're too wicked, don't enter my house. And it was Christ who had them flocking to him. And that's, that's what we are to be. That's a truly wise man where broken people will come to you for help. And why will they come to you? Because you know your own self. It's, it's easy to have a false worldly bravado. It's easy to be proud. And it's easy to be arrogant. And it's easy to be rigid. And sometimes we associate strength with those who are like that. That man's strong-willed. That, that man's strong. He, he's unyielding. Well, okay, depending on what you mean, that might be all right. But so often what that means is that man is just unloving. You see, true strength, it's, it's way harder to be truly humble. It's way harder to be gentle. Why? Why does that take so much more strength? To be gentle, it means you faced demons' temptations and had to cling to God's word with strength not your own. To be humble means that you've, you've adopted strength that wasn't yours, that was Christ, and you knew it. And so it kept you humble. But to be wise means that you are, you are those who do put that into practice. You are those who do cling to Christ. Not in perfection, but it means that you are righteous in that, in that worldly sense, not the perfection sense, but righteous in that your heart's desire is to please the Lord. Righteous in that you grow in that. And by growing in that, you've gained a strength and yet a gentleness. Gentle to know your own failure and afford that humility and what you've even afforded yourself to that person. 
You have seen your own weakness, but you've also seen the strength of God. That's a wise person who has known full well their weakness, but then turned to God's strength. That's humble. It's not humble to just know your weakness. What's humble is to know your weakness and then to turn to God. Because again, just knowing your own weakness is still self-focused. It's still pride. It's still just looking at yourself. Humility is looking away. Looking to the answer and finding there your strength. It means to be wise and gentle and loving. It means you've disciplined yourself enough to live a life of godliness and yet wrestled with temptations. You've wrestled with God's word enough to push down hypocritical judgments of others' failures, knowing that you were the one forgiven the greatest debt, that this person, what they're bringing to you, surely can receive the gospel. Because you did. Are we not, each one of us, to the best of our knowledge, the chief sinner. You know your own heart better than you knew Adolf Hitler's heart. You know the depth of your sin in such an intimate way that you don't know his. And that's why you can honestly say, I'm the chief sinner because I know my sin better than I know anyone else's. To be this takes strength. You don't care about your reputation or how others think of you, but you care for the outcast. You care for those in need. You seek peace time and again. It's hard seeking peace. It's much easier to seek your own victory, your own reward, but you seek peace. What does the world need to gain worldly wisdom? It takes a loud voice. Outshout your opponent. It takes lies and deception. It takes false representations of yourself. It takes gossip takes lust and greed and closed-mindedness, and then you can be wise in the world's mind. That is just the corpse flower that stinks and offers nothing true. That's why it's demonic. Are you wise in understanding? That's to ask, are you fully committed to Christ? Wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The Bible is plain and clear on that. It's the fear of the Lord. It's faith. And James shows us what's true faith is the life that Christ lived in our own thoughts, in our own words, in our own actions. And if it's doubted, the end result will show the genuine faith, those who confess Christ and live Christ. And in that way, we are heavenly wise. In that way, we'll be peacemakers and gentle. But don't put the cart before the horse. The one over outflows the other. Fear of the Lord produces faith. And that's why James is saying those who produce faith, those who produce wisdom are the truly wise because they've been changed. They're able to produce it. Seek Christ and seek to gain wisdom in him. He is the wise man. Everything James is saying is but an application of the way Christ was to us verse in Matthew where Christ is described as gentle and lowly, where Christ is a peacemaker, and Christ taught to be a peacemaker. When Christ was impartial, he portrayed it and lived it. Seek him to gain in that wisdom. Are you wise in understanding? It's answered this way, are you Christ? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that does indeed cut us that is at times painful to have our own pride flayed and yet we see that what comes from that flaying what comes from the enduring that and the strength of christ is what is humble and wise 
that we would be those better to produce a crop of righteousness instead of the anti-wisdom that comes from below. Let us be those who are truly wise, meaning truly spiritual, truly Christ-like. We pray this in his name.